Sublime, the podcast that sheds light on a full spectrum of spirituality. Okay, today is a an episode of another Dharma talk I gave a couple of weeks ago. Um, I should apologize here. I got a little off track last week with the podcast production. Part of this is environmental. I, I'm living in a, in a town outside of Boston where throughout the fall there is to my ears, an, an inordinate amount of uh, lawn cleanup leave blowing. And when the leave blowers descend on my neighborhood, uh, on a positive level, it sounds like I'm living inside of a Tibetan monastery where there's a near constant droning chant of a syllable like Om. It just sort of goes on and on and on. Uh, on a negative side, it, it just makes uh, any kind of audio recording near impossible. So my windows for uh, producing the podcast um, have been squeezed a bit this fall. Nevertheless, I'm grabbing the, or seizing the moment right now to record. It's relatively quiet outside. So um, this, this, this talk that I gave was uh, given at the week of what we celebrate in America as Thanksgiving. It's an opportunity to um, recollect and reflect on elements in life that you might be grateful for. And so I wanted to offer a few reflections on that in this talk. Um, and just acknowledge, too, that as we move into the winter here uh, worldwide, it, 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 it seems that the pandemic is going to continue to grind on and bring more very difficult conditions into people's lives, whether it's the death of loved ones, uh, the economic crippling um, of your ability to work or find employment or maintain employment. Um, things, I, I just need to acknowledge, things definitely feel like they might either be already collapsing or on the brink of collapse. And um, And I don't have any magical words of solace or wisdom or um, even sort of a, a technique of, of wriggling out of the, the squeeze that many of us are living through right now. Worldwide, the, the pandemic has definitely brought huge numbers of people face to face with the conditions of existence that really mark the experience of dukkha. Dukkha that is painful, difficult to be with, deeply unsatisfying, uh, and, and, and many times unavoidable. Um, so this, this encounter, as I try to speak, have I, as I've tried to talk about in past talks, this encounter with Dukkha is the first prerequisite, in a sense, so that we can fully acknowledge the pain, the suffering that we're encountering, and in fully acknowledging it, we can begin to correct course in terms of how we relate to it, how we understand it, how we comprehend it, and how we truly can start to thrive within it. And that may seem like a long shot or a long way off right now, the, 
the idea of being able to thrive within dukkha. But that, in one reading, that is my, one way of reading the, the message is stamped within the, the Buddha's fourfold teaching on the Four Noble Truths, that in opening to dukkha and comprehending its origin, we can release ourselves from it so that we are able to integrate our being into all aspects of a comprehensive life in a way that our life is not determined any longer or driven by blind uh, reactivity uh, in the face of dukkha. So I hope these reflections on gratitude, um, as, as limited and as uh, incomplete as they may be, I hope these reflections infuse your own practice, your life, your experience of this moment with um, a poignant appreciation of your existence and that that appreciation and gratitude becomes the basis, the foundation for the ongoing development of your own compassion and wisdom. So thank you for listening today. Given that in the United States uh, this week is Thanksgiving, um, I've been reflecting on that condition um, that we're, many of us are experiencing now where uh, due to conditions and protocols around the pandemic, many of us are not traveling, won't be seeing family members or loved ones that we're accustomed to seeing around this time of year. And I just want to acknowledge the, the pain that that might bring up um, and and to contextualize it because as, as I reflect on it, that that condition of, of, of being separated from those that you love and uh, sort of having to be obliged to endure the company of those you might not love in some situations, um, those two conditions are part of the Buddha's definition of dukkha or suffering. You know, there's the pain of illness, the suffering of aging, the suffering of death, um, and then all the natural calamities in the world <clears throat> that abound. Um, but it did include this this idea of being separated for the month from the ones you love and enduring the company of those that you don't particularly love as 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 manifestations of dukkha. Um, and I was poignantly uh, reminded of that. This today, I had a. a telephone call to Ireland with my my godson, who is a, a college student in Cork now. Um, I personally, for just if you don't know me, I'm not Irish, but I've spent a significant amount of time over there um, as a university student myself, and then going back to teach later on. Um, and I have this particular family that I'm very close to um, in Cork. And in talking to my godson, he... Um, you know, he was lamenting how life, as as we as they go back into a pretty severe lockdown, life feels like Groundhog Day. And he said, "We're all just sick of COVID, and we're just feeling restless, and there's nothing to do." And and in my godfatherly way, you know, I was trying to gently suggest that um, there might be ways to make use of this time, to make use of these conditions for. For the good, um, and it really sat with me in, in terms of you know how this practice 
is a practice to help us meet and engage with whatever conditions life presents us. And I came across this, this passage recently um, attributed to uh, Adyashanti. Adyashanti is a contemporary satsang, non-dual teacher. Um, he was trained for about a decade in, um, in Zen Buddhism. And then he, when he had his awakening and his teachers um, sort of encouraged him to start teaching, he, he more or less said, you know, I, I'll start teaching, but I'm not going to teach the way you guys taught. I woke, he said, I woke up in spite of Zen Buddhism, not because of it. <laughs> and um, so he he teaches in his own kind of unique idiosyncratic way. But he, this passage really spoke to me. He says, one of my favorite definitions of enlightenment comes from a Jesuit priest named Anthony DeMello. And this guy passed away some years ago. But someone asked Anthony to define his experience of enlightenment. And he said, quote, Enlightenment is about absolute cooperation with the inevitable. Enlightenment is absolute cooperation with the inevitable. And he goes on to say, this is Adyash now, he says, I love that quote because it defines enlightenment not just as a realization, but as an activity. Enlightenment is when everything within us is in cooperation with the flow of life itself with the inevitable. And as I think about, you know, our practice, the uh, meditation path, um, in many ways, one way of defining meditation itself is meditation is an activity within which we are practicing and learning about the inevitable and then learning to express our cooperation with it. And as I've said over you know a few weeks now, the the initial encounter with practice, or I should say, the initial encounter with the inevitable, is not necessarily one of good news, uh, where we start to immediately bump up against uh, our conditioned reactivity. Uh, there are very habitual forms of resistance, which which make being with the inevitable much more difficult. But over the weeks, we've started to look at yin and yang ways of dancing with the inevitable, meaning dancing with our experience. I've encouraged us to explore at times um, a very receptive, allowing quality, more of a yin attribute of the mind to be with our experience, to, to glide with it in a way. And then also we've started to introduce, I've started to introduce yang ways where we can start to direct and control and manipulate our attention um, within what's going on to see how that plays out toward, to see where that takes us. So there's these two complementary strategies, yin strategies of being allowing and receiving and yang strategies of directing and and influencing and playing with them, learning to play with these different aspects of our mind to see how we can be in consort with the inevitable conditions of our life as they unfold. In some ways, this is uh, very clearly articulated and summarized in the famous serenity prayer attributed to Reinhold Niebauer. Niebauer, I think that's how his name is pronounced. And many of you know this, but the serenity prayer, just to, to recap, is simply, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So, we, we you know, with the young dynamics of practice, uh, particularly the yang attributes of our, of our being, we learn to see what we can do, what we can, what kind of influence we can have over experience 
in service of uh, releasing ourselves from suffering and, and developing good conditions of being. And then the yin side of, the, of our practice is learning how to embrace, be open to, tolerant to, receive those things that we can't necessarily change. So this is all summarized with the idea of playing your edge in some ways. But at some point in the, in the path, and, and I know some of you have already had this experience or, or several of these types of experiences, and some of you are probably on the, the doorstep of having these experiences. Um, but at some point when we engage with these practices, we will start to taste the serenity, the, the equanimity, the balance of being that comes when we learn to uh, accept the things we cannot change and have the courage to change the things we can. There's a real sense of inner balance and inner poise and serenity. And tasting that, having direct contact with that experience um, can bring about an, a very deep appreciation and gratitude for the practice itself. So this is the week of Thanksgiving in the United States. So I thought a few words about gratitude would be in order. Um, and I think for me, um, in the course of my practice history, the my deepest encounter with this, this, this ideal and direct experience of gratitude came um, during and then after a very long period of practice I did in, in Burma or Myanmar uh, at the end of 2004 into 2005. This is, um, uh, in the, to, to put it kind of sardonically, this is that retreat, this two-month retreat in Burma was sort of my, my glory days as a meditator. You know, I'd done lots of week-long retreats here and there, but um, never been in a, in a, uh, a Buddhist country with... Um, you know, practice conditions of practicing with monks and nuns for for extended period of time, and I never really practiced that rigorously before. Um, and at this particular retreat center, uh, the, the schedule was pretty grueling. You'd wake up at three thirty in the morning, and we're asked to go to stay awake until ten or eleven o'clock at night, and more or less you'd keep up a practice of alternating an hour of sitting, an hour of walking meditation, back and forth throughout the whole day. Um, there were no books. Uh, meals were kept very simple. Uh, there were sort of these these very greasy, oily curries that were served in the morning and at lunch. And then after lunch, which ended at 1030 in the morning, there was nothing else to eat until 530 the next day, um, which is just to say the conditions were, were, were pretty challenging. Um, and on top of that, uh, in the late afternoon, mosquitoes would come out, um, and uh, they did have mosquito nettings that you could sort of climb into, like a, a, a protective prophylactic cocoon of sorts. Um, but uh, what, what became apparent to me was that the monks who had been in residence at this retreat center had already um, figured out which of the mosquito nettings were, were, were the best ones, and they had put their names and tagged them all with their special sort of way and the ones that were left for uh, sort of the lay folks like me inevitably had holes in the mosquito nets <laughs> so, you know it's the, i don't know the eighth hour that you're sitting in a sitting meditation and um, and and you just hear that mm, and then you could feel the characteristic prick and you know of course you've taken a vow of non-killing and you just have to sit there and, and try to cooperate with the inevitable <laughs> Um, 
And, uh, you know, some of you have heard me speak about this elsewhere, but uh, the particular teacher that I was paired up with on this retreat um, was probably the most quintessentially strict teacher I could imagine ever working with. He was a real lion. Uh, his name was Sayadaw Upandita. Sayadaw in, in Burmese just simply means teacher. U, the letter U, is an honorific. So he's like Sayadaw, the teacher, the honorable Upa, uh, Pandita. That was his name, Upandita. And um, he, for the first month of working with him, he, for the first month of working with him, he more or less um, expressed that I was wasting my time and and using up the the resources of the retreat center. And I should really question why I was there in the first place at all. Um, and, and with other forms of sort of psychological uh, uh, abuse slash <laughs> manipulation. And I, I, I'm still, you know, as, I'm, as I reflected on that time, I'm, I'm a little bit uncertain to whether that was a that was a, that was even necessary or worthwhile. That that kind of um, teacher-student engagement, and I certainly personally don't 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 carry that forward. I don't I don't um, believe in in, in uh, and I don't support any kind of abuse in a, in a, in a facilitator-student relationship. But he he wrote his students hard, and um, and many of them can came to feel gratitude for that, um, and really appreciate it. And I, in some ways, I do, um, I do appreciate that. He he pushed me to to see things in myself and to experience things in myself that I don't think I would experience otherwise. Um, and I didn't plan to say this, but I just last night I finished watching the uh, the, the documentary on Netflix that uh, features the. the the great uh, Phil Jackson, Chicago Bulls team, uh, and Michael Jordan as the star on it, called The Last Dance. And I was struck by some of the comments that that uh, Michael Jordan's teammates would say that, you know, they, they didn't have a lot of uh, charitable things to say about him as a person. You know, he was, he, he was very, he's a taskmaster and not necessarily a nice taskmaster. But they did appreciate and, and, and acknowledge that he pushed them to a level of excellence and achievement that they would not necessarily have realized on their own. And I, you know, as I talk about Upandita and I, I, I remember my own kind of conflictual relationship to him, I can, I can, I can acknowledge that, that he, he, his, his pressured way of teaching uh, drew something out in me that um, brought me somewhere that I don't think I would have gotten else, elsewhere. And after that retreat, um, it was the beginning of 2005, I, um, I came back to Boston and started to re-engage re, uh, in my normal life and teaching yoga and practicing acupuncture. Um, but later that fall, Upandita traveled to the West. He came to North America and he was going to be teaching a two or three month retreat at the Forest Refuge in Barrie, Massachusetts. And when I heard he was coming, I knew I couldn't take time off to go on or on a retreat with him, but I did want to go visit him and pay my respects just to sit with him and, 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 and say hello and wish him well and, and thank him again. And, th and that's what I want to speak about here. Um, I drove out with my best friend, Michael Hamilton, who's a, a great yogi and Ashtanga practitioner and teacher in Zurich, Switzerland. Michael was living in Boston at the time and we drove out on a, typical fall day. And um, when we got there, uh, we were placed in a small room. We were the only two lay people coming to visit Upandita that day. And Upandita came in to sit with us with a translator. 
And um, when I get time to my, to share something with him, I just wanted, I said to him, I said, you know, I just want to thank you again for, for your work with me in Burma and also just express how much I miss being with you, how, how, how valuable it was to be with you. And when he heard me say I missed being with him uh, in, in, a, in his characteristic way, this is like outside of retreat. He could be much friendlier outside of retreat, but he, he, he broke, he didn't speak to the translator, just in his own broken English. He says, you miss me? You miss the conditions of the forest? You miss the mosquitoes? You miss the oily food? You miss the, <laughs> the lizards and the snakes? You miss, you, you miss all that? You miss the long hours of painful meditation and knee pain and he went on and on, and he, and he listed all these things that were not so pleasant to the way we normally think of um, seeking pleasure in the world. And I said, yeah, in spite of all those things, I do miss you because I, I miss that. I miss the, the continuity of the practice there because I could see that this path, the path that you're preserving, leads in one direction, without a doubt. It leads from dissatisfaction, suffering, anxiety, distress, to an experience of equanimity, peacefulness, and contentment, and deep inner inner happiness, regardless of what is happening outside. And I could see that because I, I could be very content with a mosquito biting me or getting up at three o'clock in the morning eventually, or whatever the, the harsh condition was. Uh, once my mind had learned to cooperate with it in a way, for that period of time, and it wouldn't, it's not like it's an ongoing cooperation. There's still times I get into to my own arguments with reality, but I could I got enough of a taste of it to see that this is the direction that the path leads, and I had a tremendous gratitude for it. Now, rewind again back on, when I just got off the retreat, and the retreat ended. I remember getting on a, a, a bus with all the other Westerners that were on this retreat. And the bus was going to take us from the, the forest where the retreat center was back to Yangon, where we would hang out for a day or two before flying back to our home destinations. And when we got on the bus, this is this is early 2005, it's the beginning of February in 2005. We got back on the bus and uh, there was this sort of chain of messaging that went from the front of the bus to the back where I was sitting. And as I started to hear this chain of command or chain of communication that was trickling to the back of the bus where I was, the word tsunami kept coming up. And, uh, you know, it, it was a little disorienting at first because it was coming in fragments, but eventually it became clear that, as you all know, in 2005, there was this massive tsunami that hit Southeast Asia. And a little chill ran down my spine, a big chill, I should say, because when I was in the retreat at one point in December, I was planning to leave. I, I felt like um, I was not cooperating well with reality as it was on the retreat. It was just uh, Upandita was seemed to have it out for me. He didn't seem to like me very much. I seemed to be insulting him unintentionally all the time, and uh, it seemed like something that I should just compassionately remove myself from but just at the very day <laughs> i planned to hand in my resignation as a yogi the day i was going to say thank you and i apologize for not being a better yogi i'll i'll um, i'll step back at that very day 
uh, as these stories go. And I have no idea of, of, of explaining how he knew this. But he, just before I gave my resignation, he said, um, the way you described your meditation today, it sounds like you're finally starting to make some progress. Keep it up. <laughs> he said, if you keep up the practice you're doing now, in two weeks' time, you'll make great progress. Uh, I, I should be clear, this model of Burmese practice is one which is very progressive. There's clear signposts in this model of practice where they, they, they're trying to just push you through these, these, these uh, signposts of, of deepening of understanding in a way that I've questioned since um, how they unfold. But the point was that I couldn't leave now. <laughs> I, was, I was bound to stay. And so my, my plan, my, my escape plan was to go to Thailand, was to hang out on many of the beautiful beaches I'd heard so much about while I was in Asia. And I was going to spend the Christmas holidays um, by myself getting Thai massages and looking at the ocean, recovering and licking my wounds from a bad meditation retreat. And then when I heard the news on the bus, I realized that had I been the one that had left, I might not be on the bus, period, or be able to be on any bus. And I certainly wouldn't be here sitting now probably with you. That there was a way I, I dodged a the proverbial bullet. And having had a few of those experiences, we've all had those experiences where there's like, if things had just, if the needle had just shifted by two degrees a different way, we could be swept off the planet. And when you've had those experiences, they put your whole life in perspective in a certain way. And you, and you realize that even though you could like, you can have gratitude for many conditions in your life, but gratitude for existence itself really arises up. The fact that you're allowed to be here and continue to be here in spite of everything else, that, it, that alone, that itself is a form or a condition for deep gratitude. So that is sort of uh, the heart of what I'd, I'd like to arouse in you or let you reflect on a little bit, which is this idea of gratitude for existence itself. Not so much gratitude towards specific things like this time of year we often think about expressing gratitude towards family or loved ones or friends or our pets or just the conditions in our life um, and particularly as i said at the beginning where we're, we're many of us are in a situation where we're we're isolated from those those very conditions we tend to appreciate this time of year one way we can adapt to these conditions is to remind ourselves of a gratitude for existence and as one of my, um, the teacher, another teacher who was also a student of Upandita's named Stephen Armstrong, remember him saying one retreat at one, in one talk, he said, we all, and he looked at everybody, we all have tsunamis coming at us. We all have tsunamis coming. And that's what I was trying to get at a few weeks back with the talk, the heavenly stings. I expressed how the Buddha, when he first left his home, stepped outside the palace walls, he encountered aging, illness, and death, which shook his worldview to its core. He realized that these conditions were the inevitable. And given that these conditions were the inevitable, how would he live his life in a way that would thrive with full awareness of those inevitable conditions. So 
So in many ways, um, practice teaches us how to dance with all of life. That's, this is what the, it's not a, it's not a, uh, is, is uh, really like the way Adyashanti put it. It's like practice isn't about a specific one point time, one point in time realization where we sit down and we have some big flash of insight about something. Practice is about an act, it's an activity, an ongoing activity of learning to cooperate with the unfolding inevitable conditions of our life. trying to see where we are okay I, I in planning this talk i realized that I, there's ways that it could expand and it might go on and on and I, there's a few things that i might consider bringing in which i'm going to leave off but i do want you to um you know just consider the 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 lucky contingency that we all have in our life right now and one way of one way of appreciating our good fortune one way of appreciating our luck of being just able to exist at all can often come through contemplating the macro view of the universe through the lens of science or physics. And there's a wonderful passage from a, a physicist named Lawrence Krauss, where he says, quote, the amazing thing is that every atom in your body came from a star that exploded. And the atoms in your left hand probably came from a different star than those in your right hand. It really is the most poetic thing I know about physics. You are all stardust. You couldn't be here if the stars hadn't exploded because the elements, the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, iron, all the things that matter for evolution, these weren't created at the beginning of time. They were created in the nuclear furnaces of stars. And the only way they could get into your body is if those stars were kind enough to explode. I might add, they were generous enough to explode. <laughs> and we are the recipients of their explosion. Our life is the recipient of their explosion. And when you start to think the, in the macro terms, and there's many other ways you could, you could, you could go down the rabbit hole of exploring contingencies that, that may have sh shifted to, to bring about a very different experience of being, the fact that we're here, that we are able to peer into our experience in meditation, we're literally we're literally peering into one of the biggest mysteries of all. The fact that our own consciousness, which is a product, an evolutionary product, the fact that our own consciousness is peering back at the web of existence that produced it. And nobody knows how that's happening. <laughs> like people have, there's lots of theories and de developmental ideas about it, but we still have yet to crack the code of, of what consciousness is or what gives rise to it. And um, whether we ever get to, you know, some people debate, we'll never able to be, ever be able to scientifically understand it per se, but we can directly experience it. And that's what I think the wisdom traditions of yoga and meditation and Buddhism have really plumbed. They plumbed the first person subjective experience of consciousness what it's like 
in and of itself. And in, in tasting that, we're able to uh, see all sides of something and develop a way of, of dancing or cooperating with the inevitable. So <clears throat> to close, um, I want to share with you one of my favorite poems by this um, by this very uh, sort of a, a mirthful saint uh, named there's a Sufi saint named Hafiz. I think this is called a thousand serious moves. This poem, but he asks, Hafiz asks us, what is the difference between your existence or your experience of existence and that of a saint's? What's the difference between your life and that of a saint's? And he answers, he says, the saint knows, the saint knows that the spiritual path is a sublime chess game with God. And that the beloved, and in this literature, the beloved refers to God. And that the beloved, or God, has just made such a fantastic move that the saint is now continuously tripping over joy and bursting out in laughter and saying, quote, I surrender. Whereas you, my dear, I'm afraid you still think that you have a thousand serious moves in this game. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a love song to the, the beauty of surrender in a way. So um, we're gonna sit now and um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll review briefly some of the instructions that we've we've covered. But at the heart of tonight's sitting, um, you know, and there's no there's no technique for this, and this is where I, I I'd like to go in and out of technique driven practice and then non technique driven practice. But there's no technique for this side of just what does it mean to have gratitude in your practice for your consciousness and your own existence, and just to take that that is a as a, as a launching point of, of joyful exploration, the fact that you can joy, that you can explore this right now is something to be grateful for. So uh, let's come to our sitting and, um, and then we'll have time for journaling and some Q&A at the end. Bring yourself into a comfortable position. Sensing yourself within your body. The 
beginning with an appreciation of your own heart's intention, wishing yourself well, wishing yourself peace, wishing yourself goodwill and happiness. And then if you've been coming regularly, you know, when I re recap some of these instructions, feel free to let them really, let the instructions recede to the background of your mind and know that after about five minutes, I'll be quiet. But if you are new, very basic instructions set this process up. And the first is just to identify a neutral experience either in your body or in the environment to let your attention rest on as a perch, a perch that you can come back to from time to time whenever it feels helpful and supportive to be connected to something neutral. So I tend to recommend feeling the contact of your hands against your lap or your sit bones on the cushion or the floor or chair or just the broad field of sounds within your environment. Any of these are very um, helpful perches for your attention. And you could use all of them too. You don't have to just pick one. You could jump between them. But from the perch, the encouragement is to be receptive and allowing of your experience as it unfolds. So this is literally beginning to have a less frictionful or less frictioned, I don't know which one word is correct or not, but have less friction with reality as it is to begin to soften into more cooperation with your unfolding experience. And while being receptive to what's coming up, either in your body or your mind, whether it's a play of thought, play of emotion, field of sound, dynamic of sensation, or some combination of all of those things, you always have a choice. You have a choice to allow it to go on, to follow it in its course of expression. Or if it feels too much, if it feels flooding or overwhelming, you can always come back to your safe landing point or your safe perch of the more neutral experience. And it doesn't often happen, but if there is anything that's even more intense than 
that can't be managed by coming back to your perch, feel free to open your eyes for a period of time. Just look around, around and stabilize yourself in the visual experience of your room. And then you can, when things calm and settle, you could close your eyes again and re-engage with these basic suggestions of resting with the perch, but being open and allowing of your experience moment by moment. building on the, the theme of what lands on perches, the theme of birds. Last week, I suggested that when we realize we're not on the perch and we realize that we've been drifting, which is normal dynamic in, in meditation, just to have the mind drift. But when we, we realize we've drifted, we've woken up to it, just like a bird might reorient themselves in the air, we can flap our meditator's wings a few times. And each flap is a way to acknowledge a layer of our experience. So I, I, I try to integrate this idea in the instruction around when you wake up, you woke up mid-flight, say, in some thought world or uh, a plan or a memory. You can take note of what's occurring in your body. That's one flap of the wings of orientation, just to register what is going on in your body. There's tingling, or this is pressure, or there's tension, or coolness, or warmth, or movement, or vibration, whatever is there. can then orient yourself after the body to noting and recognizing what's going on in your mind. Either the presence or absence of thoughts, feelings. And you can also acknowledge what's going on in your environment. So these three big domains of our experience, check out check in or tune in with the body, your mind, and then your environment. This is the yang integration where we, in a directed, uh, intentional way, we take note of our body, mind, and environment. And then my suggestion from last week was simply just to let yourself then glide quietly and silently with your moment-to-moment -to -moment experience. Not trying to keep your attention on one thing per se, but just gliding with the unfolding display of sensation, sound, thought, emotion, memory, sensation, sound, thought. We're not trying to keep any of these out. We're certain we're just learning to 
see them clearly, learning how to skillfully relate to these conditions. And these two aspects of our being, the receiving and then the directing of yin and yang, support us in our ability to cooperate, flow, and thrive with the inevitable in our experience. Okay, thanks for listening to today's talk. As I said at the beginning, I hope the, the talk gives some support to you and um, appreciation in the middle of all the difficulties that we're all experiencing right now. Uh, I often reflect in my own practice on a, a p passage from the Sri Lankan monk Bhante Gunarantana, who is the author of Mindfulness in Plain English, among other great Dharma books, but he had a phrase for metta practice, which was something like, may I have the patience, courage, and understanding to meet and overcome life's inevitable difficulties, challenges, problems, and failures. We will all be experiencing these things sooner or later. And um, again, the Dharma is a way of opening to these deep existential truths and and then learning to thrive within them. So I do hope that uh, some of the reflections here, whatever is useful to you, you can take it and make it your own and, um, and really continue on in the cultivation of your own practice here. Um, so a little bit of housekeeping before I say goodbye. Uh, this is the third to last talk of the year. I have one more Dharma talk I'll be releasing on wise effort next week. So stay tuned for that. And then after that talk, I'm going to leave you with an interview I did with a Swiss Zen priest named Vanya Palmers. And Vanya caught my attention because he was involved in a study conducted by the University of Zurich looking at what would happen to meditators on a meditation retreat if they were to take a fairly large dose of the psychedelic psilocybin, which is extracted from mushrooms, magic mushrooms. What would happen to those meditators if they if they took a large dose of psychedelics um, on their retreat? And so in that conversation, we, we really get into exploring the integration uh, of psychedelic medicine with meditation practice. And it's a, I'll say more about that when I introduce that conversation, but it's a topic that I'm very, very intensely interested and intrigued by. So stay tuned for that, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.